Welcome to this edition of Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we are speaking with Bates Smart Director Philip Vivian. Since 1998, Philip Vivian has led the studio of Bates Smart in Sydney, growing the practice from six to over 150 staff, largely through winning design competitions. Along the way, his projects have received 24 state and national AIA design awards for commercial architecture, interior architecture, urban design, ESD and heritage. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Philip Vivian. Thank you, Branko. Okay, so Australia's tallest uh, engineered timber office, uh, Brisbane's 25 King, has finally been officially unveiled. The office tower, which has been designed by Bates Smart, includes extensive use of innovative and sustainable building materials, such as glue, laminated timber, structural beams and columns, and cross-laminated timber floors, as well as state-of-the-art technology to deliver what is being hailed as a true workplace of the future. So can I ask, why is timber making a comeback and where do you see it becoming central to construction? Uh, Well, Branko, I'm glad you said why is it making a comeback because, of course, timber was the predominant material in construction if we went back 100 years. Um, All of the wharves in Sydney and warehouses were, of course, all built of timber. And some of those were up to eight storeys high. So we were building tall timber 100 years ago. Of course, back then it was the only building material. And as we moved into the 20th century, other materials like steel and concrete became more prevalent. I think the comeback now is really about um, sustainability. We're seeing timber has... It it sequesters carbon from the atmosphere, so it's helping us tackle the issue of um, climate change. Um, And not only is it sequestering carbon in and of itself, but it's replacing other materials that have high embodied carbon. And the other aspect is the healthy work environments. Um, People are looking for work environments that that connect them with nature, quite often what we call a, a biophilic work environment, um, where people feel that they're, they're connected to nature and therefore um, we are working, we're working longer hours and to be in a completely artificial environment for all those hours is not a healthy thing. So I think people are looking to connect with nature um, and, and part of, uh, and make themselves, f- it, you, you feel better about being at work and in and of itself. Um, The second part of your question is um, how do we see it becoming central? Where will it become central to construction? I think the interesting thing about 25 King, it's a 10-storey building. Um, Almost all, well, all the structure above ground has been replaced with timber construction. And I I think it's in that kind of low to um, mid-scale building where timber can replace traditional materials. Once we get into taller buildings once you might call it a high rise I think timber becomes less and less relevant Um, we have engineered a building up to 21 stories in timber Um, unfortunately that's not going ahead but we showed that it can be done to 21 stories but so the so it's it's not an not an engineering issue that the the building's not going ahead is there other issues or Uh, that was another issue Uh, we were part of a competition and it was a um Look, it was a, it's a risk issue, to be honest. Um, it was a competition for a headquarters for an insurance company. and oh. that <laughs> The risk insurance, yeah. Well, the go. interesting thing is that that company committed to reducing their carbon emissions by 50%. 
and we went down the route of giving them a timber headquarters um, and we thought that's fantastic. The CEO, who's based in Switzerland, um, made this commitment to reducing carbon emissions. A lot of our timber currently comes from Switzerland and Austria while we're building up the local industry and we thought we had them hook, line and sinker. Unfortunately, whilst they love the idea, um, the risk of a timber high-rise, and they were insurance, um, was too much for them to take. Um, but I, I think probably 20 storeys is getting at the upper limit. As you get taller and taller, you need to start replacing more and more timber with reinforcing it with steel, using concrete and other materials, and it becomes less and less of a, the obvious material for construction. The other area is residential. The shorter spans of residential, um, replacing walls with timber, um, all points in the direction of timber being uh, a much more natural fit for residential than commercial, to be honest. Um, So I think we'll see quite a lot of residential buildings built out of timber. Um, There's quite a few happening on the outskirts of Sydney, and we'll see some low-rise commercial buildings. Okay, that's very interesting. So... Overall, can I ask what are the positives of a timber frame building from a design perspective? And also, I'm assuming, I mean, you've mentioned some negatives in terms of the height, but are there other negatives? Uh, Look, yes. Let's start with the positives first. I mean, the the idea of a material that is a a warm, natural material um, with natural finishes, for an architect is something that's very alluring. It's also a material where you can expose the structure. Um, one of the things I love about timber buildings, the interesting thing is at the moment they're really cost neutral with traditional construction. Now, interestingly, you're paying more for the, the materiality of the building, um, so they're more expensive in terms of materials, but you can build them much quicker and with less labour on site. And on balance, it comes out at the same. But for an architect, I think the idea that um, what you're delivering for your client is they're getting what they paid for rather than paying for the labour is a very attractive idea. And that, that they're seeing the structure, they're seeing the natural finish of timber. You're not cladding concrete or steel in other materials to provide a, a finish. So, you know, it's got some great advantages in terms of really understanding how a building's put together and its finishes. But you then said, what are its negatives? I think the, um, the, the issue of shorter spans, it, it's not as strong as steel or concrete. It's not going to have as long a span. And particularly when you look at a material like concrete, which is a much more plastic material, if you want to put it into complex shapes, it's a lot easier than timber, which uh, is a linear material and has certain limitations about um, getting more and more complex in terms of geometry. So they're probably the two major challenges, I think, with timber. So what about the elasticity? Um, You know, different materials have different uh, elasticities and and, and different, you know, flexible um, ranges. So um, can I ask, um, is there a, a marked difference between, let's say, the, 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 uh, a timber frame building and, and a concrete building in terms of elasticity? Uh, look, it's an interesting interesting question and probably one that I'm not fully qualified to answer. No, I, was just, I was just wondering if you knew a topic. Um, I, I, I know you're not an engineer, so yeah. um, just, I was just out of my own interest, really. Um, look, yeah. 
from an engineering perspective, uh, I've never heard and, and I've never felt that timber is more elastic. Um, but one of the lovely things about walking on timber is, is there's a softness and, um, and there's a warmth. You know, when you hear footsteps on a hard surface, it's a, it's a hard vibrating sound. When you walk on timber, there's a softness to it. Um, and interestingly, being on site for a building like 25 King, um, when you're normally on a site and when something like a nail gun is used, there's a jarring noise that actually can go right through you and quite, you know, almost penetrate you. When you're on a timber building site, the, the noise is absorbed. Um, the site is quieter and you actually notice the people are calmer on site. There's less of this sort of aggressive vibration and noise and everyone seems happier. Um, so a bunch of ha- happy, calm tradies. Correct. In the interview last year, you said that a society expresses values through what it designs and builds. In that respect, what societal values are the most important to you and why? Um, that, that's a, it's a... It's a great question, and it's a big question. Look, I, I tend to look at the um, the things we can have influence on. I, I think clearly one of the greatest challenges in the 21st century is um, the issue of climate change, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's really a challenge that, that we must act on now. Um, uh, just last week it came out that it's almost too late for us to um, have any impact on reducing climate change to less than... Um, plus two degrees. Um, so it's really an imperative. And I, I, I think whilst we're, what we're doing now is looking at more and more sustainable buildings, trying to get buildings that are um, sequestering carbon, that are um, uh, not drawing electricity from the grid. So we're trying to get buildings that are far, far more sustainable and more humane. I think um, as we go into the 21st century, uh, people are seeing their their work and their life as as far more intermeshed if we if we go back to industrialization in the 19th century work was something that was very disconnected from from daily life and even the 20th century as we moved into away from blue collar work into white collar work um, they they were still very much white collar factories if you like um, that you went to it was a sort of drudge if you like and the city was not seen as something you lived in and enjoyed you went home and enjoyed your your life i think what we're seeing is a renaissance in cities in the 21st century as genuine places where you are living working and our cities are if you look at them now they're less polluted um there we have cafes that are outdoors and i think particularly as we get cars that are going to be electric vehicles and automation and less cars on the road i think the 21st century is going to be characterized as a century of cities and a a century in which we are going to um really start loving living in our central cities and as short as 30 40 50 years ago that was simply not the case Bates Smart has been at the forefront of designing vertical campuses with flexible floor plans, open plans and, and collaborative working models. 
why is this model of education design so prevalent and how does it actually impact on the overall overall design design process um well look i I think what's happening is um campus campuses have been recognized as very collaborative work environments Um, you've got people from various faculties in a contained environment where they're bumping into each other there's a lot of social spaces and I think vertical campuses we're now realizing that we can recreate what happens in a a university campus a horizontal campus we can recreate it vertically we can get these sort of social spaces where people can move vertically through a building Um, and so we can get people collaborating vertically a lot more we can get a lot more um, kind of social spaces into taller buildings so there's a there's a whole new ethos about how we can get people moving and interacting in taller buildings and create what we call sticky spaces spaces that people want to stay in inside the building Um, and and of course vertical campuses are there's a more intense utilization of the land and I, I think one of the greatest challenges Australia has is to um, start using land more densely. Um, We have traditionally built in this really low density environment because uh, we have seemingly a lot of land in Australia but the way we've built um, post World War II in the late 20th century um, has been low-rise suburbs expanding forever with a sort of one dense city centre and we've literally reached the limits of of that model of city building uh, where we've got people who are travelling over an hour to work um, there is it, the density is so low it doesn't support public transport so all of the outer suburbs are car dependent which is not a sustainable form of transport so I think this we, we really our cities need to start stop expanding outwards and start looking inwards at denser utilisation of land um, so we can get public transport and much more dense cities um, if, if I had my way, I would literally draw strong red lines around the perimeter of all our cities and say no more expansion for suburbs. We really need to, um, as our cities grow in the future, is grow inwards um, and grow more densely. That's um, that's interesting. It, it, you've kind of answered the next question, but I'll, I'll then slightly modify it. So um, there's obviously... Uh, a lot of resistance to that that concept of, of densification, if, if that's, that's the term. Um, but and you're not the first architect and, and or, or first urban planner that I've actually heard say that. So, um, what what does it what does it need? Uh, is, is it is it is it something that that um, people have to get their mind over or, or is it a prejudice or is or is it what does it need for mm. for it for people to um grasp that idea and run with it look i think it, it's interesting that society has coalesced around the idea of wanting to do something for climate change um and, and acknowledges that we need to be more sustainable um, and there's a lot of pressure on government particularly in the energy sector, to provide more sustainable forms of energy and to move away from um, a carbon-based economy. But there is, there is seemingly a disconnect with, with that sentiment in society and with what we need to do to our cities um, to be a more sustainable, 
um, less carbon intensive city form which is a denser type of city and based more on public transport I think there's a a general resistance to change so that's a human thing right that, that, that is a human thing um, I think one of the big challenges is um, people also worry about taller buildings high rise um, whereas what I'm talking about is density and tall buildings are a part of density but they're a very small part and I think there's there's a lot of reluctance when people see some high-rise coming to their neighbourhood and look I will admit some neighbourhoods have had too many high-rise but I think what we've got to focus on is creating denser sustainable and good living environments so creating density around transport sustainable transport nodes um, creating places for people to live in apartments um, but also creating outdoor space as well so that they are great living environments in terms of design or should I say redesign what would you like to urgently see changed for the better that, that would reflect the 21st century Australian city? I mean, uh, let's say, let's, let's say your, even your top three, if you like. Top three, okay. Um, look, uh, it, I think the most urgent need for change is public transport. We've, we've got to move away from this um, car-dependent um, city model and get a, a model of a city based on public transport. And I'm very happy to say that um, our three biggest cities, um, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, are all currently building um, metro rail transport. Um, so it's retrofitting the cities. Um, the second thing then is, having done that, I'd really like to see our government... Um, it's, it's great that government is supporting public transport. I'd like to see them more proactively support density around those transport stops, around those transport nodes. Um, there is a bit of a fear when, when communities see density around transport nodes, is, does this mean the end of the suburbs? Um, I would think it definitely doesn't mean the end of the suburbs, but it means denser transport corridors with low density in between. I think what, what I'd like to see the end of is low density everywhere. So I'd like to see us develop away from this what I mentioned before, the monocentric city model surrounded by low-density suburbs that are car-dependent and moving towards a, a more polycentric city model. So there are multiple nodes of high density. There's not just one centre of work. And you might notice in the Greater Sydney Commission's vision of three cities that there are three cities, three work centres um, that in, in Sydney, so it will become a city of three major centres. But I think we need to also look at denser clusters of living and apartments and and really change the balance from what... I'm not sure the statistics, but it feels like we offer our community... 90% is, is single detached houses. Um, and that's not really choice. I think part of the affordability equation needs to look at greater housing choice um, so that we have different choices of different housing types, apartment types, apartment sizes, and as you move through life and families grow and shrink again, that we can be living in the right and the most sustainable um, 
housing choice for that stage of our life. And at the moment, Australian cities don't really offer that that level of choice to our our residents. So you're saying move away from the, the American model more to a European model? Um, I, I def- yes, I like the European model a lot more with um, greater density um, and away from what I would call the well the, the Los Angeles model of America. Um, I actually lived for four years in New York um, and so when you say America to me the image of New York pops up in my mind and that to me is is a very dense urban model Um, and as you move out of course into Queens and Long Island there are lower density options but there's a much denser city centre so um, I think we've got to move away from the Los Angeles suburban sprawl the sort of um, Houston, Phoenix, Arizona type models but there are denser models of sustainable cities in America. Okay, so how would you describe... Well, let's continue on the theme of sustainability. How would you describe um, sustainability in the built environment in Australia at the moment? And are we missing the mark in some cases, especially... I mean, you mentioned residential design. I mean, especially when you... You talk, we talk about it, house design. I mean, someone recently told someone from Europe recently said that in winter they're colder in the house, in an Australian house than they are in a house in Germany. Yes. So, is there um, obviously there's room for movement there? But, yes. <laughs> but um, uh, overall, how, you know, where where should we firstly look at sustainability? What what are the first things that we need to do? Okay. Uh, look. In terms of describing sustainability, obviously the it's about minimising our use of natural resources, so minimising energy use, minimising water use so that we, we are living more sustainably. Um, when you mention the European model, I think one of the great things the Europeans have done, um, and they have a much harsher climate than us, um, they might not get quite as hot in summer, but of course they get much colder in summer, is they've required much higher levels of insulation to all of their homes and that's why Australian homes yeah, get very cold um, in winter I think we've been rather because we have this generally temperate climate um, and for the two or three months of winter where it actually is quite cold we, we tend to grin and bear it if you like um, we haven't focused on insulation and creating more sustainable homes that are um, warmer in winter and cooler in summer through having much greater insulation. So I think in terms of our residential built environment, that is one of the major things we need to look at um, is our, the, the quality of insulation we use. Uh, beyond that, I think when we consider the built environment, we need to think of the built environment as a resource in and of itself. So I'd be looking at um, buildings that are more adaptable, that live for longer um, and have a looser fit and can be adapted to changing uses, adapted to changing... Uh, uh, societies, um, so that we are not building things for the short term that get not that are that are more single use, monofunctional, and then when things change, need to be knocked down and reused. I think if we could start to say it's more sustainable to build things that are looser and more flexible, and will last for hundreds of years. And if you look at um, European cities. Um, and some of the, the buildings particularly that were built in the um, 19th, early 20th century, we are, we're still living hundreds of years later in those same buildings. They've been highly adaptable. Um, they have generous ceiling heights, 
beautiful windows, uh, quite a lot of solidity on the outer walls, giving you that insulation. Um, and they're just sustainable buildings that will last through the different uses we've had. Um, a lot of them were, in the early days, built for people who had large multi-storey homes and then over time they've been broken into smaller and smaller apartments but they're still highly usable Um, and so I think if we could focus on that flexibility um, that would make us a much more sustainable culture less uh, short term and uh, knock it over and start again. heard a lot of architects talk about um, automation and technology being being a big thing. Is that one thing you're seeing or, or are there other things that that are that are bigger challenges? Oh, um, look, uh, Franco, there's always the, the short-term economic and sort of operational challenges. Any firm goes through that and we, we're, we're I think the economy's slowing so we are facing that but uh, I think really the bigger challenges, we, we've talked a lot about climate change um, and as being one of the greatest challenges, I think, in the 21st century. The, the other issue is inequality. Um, that, that there's this huge inequality between the haves and have, not, have nots in society. Um, and I, I think the issue is how do we create a more just and equitable world? Um, we are just starting to, as a country, look at... Um, delivering affordable housing um, either through the public sector or the private sector in a much more serious way than we have um, to deal with the affordability challenge. Um, I, I think as architects really we all want to leave the world a better place and when we look at the issue of affordability and inequality um, it, it's, it's not right. Um, you know, in, in the 21st century there are still 33% of city dwellers are living in slums and, and that's you know Really, is that a global figure? That, that's a global figure. Obviously, yeah. we're not living in slums in Australia, Definitely but not. we have an affordability challenge, which is just part of that inequality. And I think if what I'd love to do is leave the world a, a more equitable place and, and a better place. Um, and then, lastly, you, you mentioned um, automation. Uh, it's interesting. I, I feel, in a way, the the sort of three D drafting programs that we have are a form of automation um, that we're now um, putting buildings together in three dimensions um, and and we're, when we make changes it is changing it through all of the floor levels if we move a column for instance we're not having to move it if it's a 20 storey building we're not moving it 20 times we are moving it once and that happens over all the 20 floors if we for instance change the shape of a floor plate automatically all the areas in the building are updated. So I think there's an interesting level of um, uh, quiet automation coming into the industry through these three-dimensional programs that are um, uh, much more comprehensive than the old way that we worked, say, when I was a student at university. So, staying on the theme of automation, I've noticed a lot of uh, VR, uh, virtual reality, or, or AR, is it, augmented reality, I'm not even sure what the proper term is, 
are being used by by a number of firms. Um, mm. Do you guys use it? Uh, and is it is that something that you see is it helpful or useful? Because I, I find it um, very interesting that they you know they use those big goggles and they're they're actually walking through a building in real time. Yes. That back to the, the automation question: is that actually helpful, or, or is it is it al- almost in a way superfluous to, to the design process? Uh, uh, yes, we are using virtual reality, um, uh, particularly the goggles. To look, what we're finding it most helpful for it's um, not so much a form of automation, but it's a a means by which we can show our clients very quickly. Um, the environments and the spaces that we're imagining. It's a more immersive form of understanding the, the kind of spaces that we're creating from them, for them. Um, so I guess one of, the, one of the challenges always for an architect is um, it, it, it's a design profession and trying to... You're, you're always looking for what is the best means to get your client to understand the... The, the buildings and spaces that you are creating and virtual reality has been fantastic for that um, the other thing that's happening is um, with a lot of these tools it, it's enabling us to prototype spaces and, and, and buildings a lot quicker so it's really enabling us to cycle through options and understand them much more quickly and, and much more comprehensively including putting them in the city and moving around them in a 3D environment and so I think it's really helping the creative process Um, one of my sayings often is um, in the design process is I I love to fail I say to my guys very happy to fail um, which is really what it's releasing them from is um, the conservatism 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 of expected answers I'm saying actually let's 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 look at the unexpected answers and don't worry about failing. I'm very happy to fail. I just want to fail fast um, so that we can cycle through the options, explore things that are out there um, and then come towards the best solution. If, you, if, you, if you're not failing, I think you're not trying hard enough. You're not pushing the envelope hard enough. Um, and if you only fail once, you're, you're not covering enough options so so we really try to look at explore what are the options laterally and we enjoy our failures okay well that's interesting so lastly if i was an architect graduating today what would be one bit of advice that you'd give me you, you know with all your vast experience and all, all the years of things that you've seen what would be the one thing that you would you would think i need to know it's a great question the one, it's almost a word of caution, is that the, the tools that we have available through computers and the rendering and animation um, are so amazing these days that um, I see a lot of architects coming out, they're incredibly skilled at using the tools. Uh, but I would just caution it and say it is just that. It is only a tool. And that um, architecture is, a, it's a creative profession a design profession it's about thinking laterally um, and there's a certain element I think of drawing and not being simply seduced by the tools Um, if you go back 20 or 30 years 
It's like the rotaring pen. You can be very good at drawing, but it's simply a tool. Um, and so just realise that it's a tool to realise um, uh, design and to focus on, on the creative aspects and not just get um, uh, too in love with what is fundamentally a tool for producing ideas. Fall in love with the ideas, not the tool. Wow, that, is, that has been enlightening. Thank you very much, Philip Vivian, um, Director of Bait Smart. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design, so until next time, goodbye.